probably the big break where my name, Vermont Social's name, started to get out there was when Ted King hired me to do his Road to Kansas series. Um, and that was also just an incredibly fun year where it was just him and I going to like Land Run, going to Iceland, going to Kansas, just absolutely goofing off and just filming everything and having fun. We weren't structuring these videos. We were just like, let's film whatever we want to film and just like see what happens and make a cool video. From KOM Cycling and Michigan Midpack Media, welcome to the Dirty Chain Podcast, the podcast that covers the cycling scene from the viewpoint of the Michigan Midpack. I'm your host, Trevor. And this is Sheldon. And on this episode, we talk with Ansel Dickey, filmmaker, event director, former pro cyclist, and we found out during the interview, third place finisher of the 2017 Barry Roubaix. Now, I'm sure quite a few of you have seen... Um, videos with Ted King. He has uh, King of the Ride YouTube videos, or before that, it was Grow to Kansas. And then now there are Wahoo Frontiers videos. And Ansel and his production company, Vermont Social, has produced all these really high quality and inspiring videos. If you haven't watched them, listen, stop the podcast, go to YouTube, watch a few of these videos because they are fantastic. Sheldon, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. His videos are so professionally made. They're just so inspiring. They want it, They make you want to get out on your bike and go ride some gravel roads. Which we definitely need in the middle of winter. But yeah, we talk about a ton of different things with Can this. you look out your window right now? <laughs> it is snowing. It is definitely. It is snowing. <laughs> you said that and I looked out and I'm like, not riding right now. <laughs> But yeah, we get into a whole host of things with Ansel, um, not just about filmmaking, but about his whole uh, career as a cyclist and now taking over the Vermont Overland uh, 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 race in Vermont coming up in August. So yeah, Sheldon, you mentioned it. It's snowing. Um, again, uh, let me revisit this. Neither for- one of us has. Neither one of us has fat tires. <laughs> we don't have fat tire bikes, but also... We mentioned this last episode uh, that we haven't done an outdoor ride. Um, <laughs> how's how's that going? <laughs> uh, so I I was riding the trainer almost every day up until about a week ago. I started taking classes at our local uh, community college uh, that just started this week, so it kind of kicked me off the bike for a bit. But you you were shaming me before we started recording, so I'm I'm gonna get back on the trainer. Uh, as soon as we get done recording and uh, sweat it out on some Zwift. Nice. What about you? I know you've been racing a bit. I have. Um, and and listen, I don't want to turn off all our listeners. Um, we've we've kind of met the Zwift quota for the entire year, for all of 2021. <laughs> we've talked enough about Zwift that I'm sure people are already sick about it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a Zwift podcast. I, I promise you we uh, won't talk about Zwift every single time, but... Um, more about Swift. I have been racing on Swift, <laughs> and uh, so I, Sheldon. I don't think I told you this. Um, 
our mutual friend Nathan Laraza has uh, he is like a uh, a machine on Zwift, and he's been riding with this team ATP, and he's been kind of bothering me a little bit about um, just trying out a race with him and the team. And mm-hmm. so last week, um, kind kind of uh, I was inspired by Alex and and his whole uh, the. Uh, the, the finesse, finesse rockets and yep. uh, and I was like yeah it would be great to be part of a team so uh, Nathan hit me up and I was like okay I'll I'll try it out and I'm not quite sure why he thought I would be a good fit with his team but uh, <laughs> whatever we did this practice team time trial and uh, they blew me away <laughs> <laughs> my performance was lacking <laughs> it was a short team time trial. And uh, it was maybe like 25 minutes long. I lasted 15 to 16 minutes, and then I was out of there. <laughs> <laughs> they they dropped you? Oh, my God. So fast, man. Like, I my heart rate went from 100 to 195 in like three seconds, and then stayed at 195 for 25 minutes. <laughs> I could not, I could not get it down. And, I mean... These guys were, were were fast guys. Nathan rides with some some super fast dudes, and uh-huh. uh, I had no business being a part of that. Um, but it was did they revoke their invitation? <laughs> I I thought so, but they put me on like the second string team. So <laughs> so, but I am I, I've been racing with uh, this ATP team um, on a on like a lower level A squad that's a little more mm-hmm. my level and it's fun I mean they have the team time trial and then like the scratch or the points race and uh, we've done one of those I think we'll do another one um, coming up here this week and uh, yeah it's been it's it's been an, an, just a whole new element of racing with a team and uh, and yeah and a good way to try to get that fitness back in in the winter. Um, but well, you've been ambitious. You've been riding in the morning. That's, that's the hardest time for me to get on the trainer. And you just got to get it in. Just got to get it in. Yeah. But I do, I do wish that, um, that, I mean, like we were talking that, uh, we had actually planned on trying to get out today, um, to do an outdoor ride, but again, with the snow and everything. And now my only bike is my brand new gravel bike. Um, yeah, you, all right. Well, that, let's talk about that. You sold your old trusty steed yeah the the specialized diverge she's uh she's she's been good to me yeah but um but she's gone like to a a friend of ours dustin Derrick. he does not have a fat bike but or fat bike he uh did not have a gravel bike and so it seemed like a good good home for the for the diverge so i'm sure it'll still get a lot of miles and some good riding time but uh but yeah i mean i almost hung on to it because i thought uh, it would be good to have a, a gravel bike to ride in some of this bad weather or just have a backup. But then I thought, you know what? I, Sheldon has six. I'll just borrow one of his. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But um, And that's actually happened before. It it has. It has. Um, it is good. Yeah, it's good to have friends with multiple bikes for sure. And, and sim- similar heights and multiple bikes. <laughs> yep. And, and we ride with the same pedals. Yes. Uh, Crank Brothers. Yep. That is helpful. But anyways, I did not want to take my brand. I haven't even uh, gotten my brand new bike out into the elements yet. And I did not want to do it while it was muddy and, and snowy. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to wait a little bit on that. I, I stopped by your house yesterday and uh, got to see it in the flesh, and that is one sexy beast. But you haven't even put the pedals on yet. <laughs> it's, it's still like, yeah, there's still a little bit of, of uh, well, yeah, I just, 
I haven't written it yet, so there's no need for yeah, pedals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you got carbon hoops on it, and uh, that metallic paint job looks freaking sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited for sure. Speaking of gravel bikes, um, there is something, Sheldon, I want to talk about. Uh, there was a big announcement or a big registration this last week with Gravel Worlds. Um, that's mm-hmm. in uh, out of Lincoln, Nebraska, um, coming up in August, I think. But, August 21st. But they did a big, um, you know, it's been one of the, Gravel Worlds has been one of the biggest gravel races on the gravel calendar year after year. But this year for 2021, they announced a 300 mile option and a um, few big names that I, I think you had to maybe, uh, uh, I don't know what, what, what word of it. I mean, it was like an invite only um, well, you had to apply for it. Thank you. Yeah, you had to apply for it. Um, and so uh, there's a couple big names. I saw that uh, Yuri Oswald, uh, Jay Peterberry, they're they're participating. But a couple local local people also. Um, uh, Lansing, Two locals. Yep, yep. Uh, Andrea Truinsky and then a friend of ours, uh, Brett Miller, they all signed up for this. You might call it a race. This is what I want to talk about. It's, I mean, it's a 300-mile event, 300-mile ride, um, which, is, which is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, you and I are not uh, opposed to long-distance rides or races. We've, we've done our handful of some of those. But I do wonder, and I want to get your opinion on this, um, where do you think the ceiling is for the distance? How far can we push these distances and still call it a gravel race. Yeah. Is it like going to be like 2025 and it Rams going to become a, a gravel race? Like, I, I think it's a good question. I mean, I each, and actually we kind of get into this with our conversation with Ansel. We were talking about Beru Bay and how, you know, the hundred mile is the, the longest distance, but now you have, um, uh, uh, unbound and uh, all of these with like 200 mile distances it's like well they want to just just in michigan we've got what three or four 200 mile gravel races and it just seems to me it's like are they just trying to one-up each other or see how far they can push the envelope and i'm wondering is if if they should push the envelope do we need to keep adding more and more distances um or distance for these races or does it cease to become a gravel race and just an endurance ride? I, yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I, th- I think it will come, it'll come down to, and it will be interesting to see what the terrain that they throw at these riders because we have events such as the Crusher and Sancho, yet where they're at that 200-mile mark, but they like to throw in the most difficult terrain you can possibly imagine. Um, but then are we going to have these 300 milers are they going to be 300 miles of gravel road or is it going to be 300 miles with this mixed terrain thrown in on top of it and i think that's where it's going to kind of you're going to find people that either want to ride you know where they can set a tempo and ride for 300 miles or are we going to have people that are riding 200 miles but you're having to carry your bike for portions of it sure i guess my fear is that, for instance, back to Barry-Roubaix, even though there's 100, and that's the, that's the, the longest distance you can ride for Barry, but even with that 100, the competitive distance is the 62. 
Yeah, that's where all the pros show up. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that distances like that, those mid... Well, now, I mean, it's still a long distance, but now we're thinking, oh, it's just like a mid... Uh, Medi- a medium distance. Yeah, like a medium distance. Um, I'm afraid that those are going to kind of go away and become less and less competitive. And people are going to think of those as less. And unless you do the the longest distance, then it's less of an accomplishment, which is I think is... is uh, unfortunate because it's all an accomplishment to be doing these things and even though you can still have a really difficult 62 mile race um, and ride and not have to do 100 200 300 miles to feel like you're participating in this like gravel culture yeah i i'm hoping that this enables and i think we we've actually seen it happening in michigan we've got these smaller grassroots 50 to 60 mile races that are kind of on the off weekends per se. And I think these smaller, you know, smaller events, both in distance and smaller in field size is going to keep that feeling that gravel has enabled. And I think having these big 200, 300 mile races sprinkled throughout the year is going to enable these smaller grassroots races to thrive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because yeah. my my big concern is, you know, if you have just a, you know, the the go to event of the year, say Barry Roubaix, if they all are shooting to have these sixty mile, you know, three thousand person fields, that kind of can get rid of that that small grassroots feeling. So having these big races, I think, is going to kind of help stretch out the the field a little bit and enable these grassroots events to thrive yeah yeah definitely well cool yeah i just wanted to talk a little bit about gravel worlds i it's it's on my bucket list for sure i would like to make the trip out there some year and do gravel worlds probably not the 300 but who knows maybe after this year people are gonna say it's the best uh, long distance event that they've ever done so maybe i want to do it but Probably just the, I don't know what other distances they have, but... They have like a 150, the 150 yeah. is like their their main... Right. That's where a lot of the the pros go to race. And I mean, I think Gravel Worlds it should be on everyone's bucket list, uh, mine included, because they really kind of stepped up when uh, sanctioned gravel was, was being talked about a lot, and they were like... Why? Why does there need to be a this sanctioned gravel world? Right. We already have. We already have gravel worlds, <laughs> and they re- they really dug their heels in against uh, UCI and USA Cycling about the, the term gravel worlds when they were talking about doing these premier sanctioned races. Uh, we we saw gravel worlds, and the, you know the pirate cycling really yep. dug their heels in to say, no, we already have this. We're not interested. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, but yeah, um, I'll be interested to see how it goes. Good luck to Brett and to Andrea. And oh, Tom Keller. Um, yep, Tom Keller got into it too. He's he's a friend of the podcast. So yeah, good luck to all of them and everyone participating in uh, in Gravel Worlds and anyone that's looking to attempt a ridiculously long race <laughs> or event in 2021. Um, again, I'm not opposed to long events, but I'm just wondering where that threshold goes from gravel race to endurance race or, or whatever. And if you're going to call it a gravel mm-hmm. race, then maybe it needs to be less than 200 miles. I don't know. It's just, it's just a thought I had. So, 
Like I said at the top, if you've watched any of the videos from Ted King or Wahoo Frontiers, you've seen some of Ansel Dickey's work as a filmmaker with his production company, Vermont Social. And uh, I think that's where I first saw his name around, attached to Vermont Social, knowing that that, that was his company and that he was making these films. And, uh, and then I just kept seeing his name pop up, and I was thinking, man, this dude's really uh, super interesting. We should talk with him. And then I saw that he's taking over Vermont Overland as the director of that event, and I thought, for sure we need to talk with this guy. Um, so we, I really fascinating conversation with Ansel. We just didn't talk about filmmaking. We talked about cycling, gravel, um, all sorts of different things, and uh, yeah. So here's our conversation with Ansel Dickey. Yeah, I'm excited to meet you guys. You guys are from Michigan? Yeah, we're from uh, the Lansing area. Um, it seems like the gravel scene in Michigan is pretty good. I remember when I first got into stepping away from road and like kind of sticking my toe in the water of gravel, Barry Roubaix was like the biggest and only big gravel race. Yeah, right? like, in yeah. The, like in the country, right? Like, yeah, in the country. Yeah. So um, you might you win an award for being one of the first uh, guests not from Michigan to bring up Barry Roubaix before Sheldon or I brought up Barry Roubaix. That's awesome. <laughs> I have a hilarious story about that because I don't remember which year it was, but it was the only year I ever did it. And I flew out, had a crazy travel experience because my license was expired. I was like 20 and I was trying to rent a car, and I showed up in, like, the outskirts of Detroit at the car rental place, and uh, the lady at the desk was like, dude, this license is expired. We can't rent you a car. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, and I'm stuck here. So I took an Uber back to downtown Detroit, and I'm coming from Vermont because I'm from Vermont, and I lug my bike bag through kind of like the city, which was like a scary experience for a 20 year old at night and I go to the Greyhound station which is also a very scary place at night in downtown Detroit and I take a, a Greyhound to uh what was it Grand Rapids is yeah. where Barrier Bay yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty close to Grand Rapids yep. yeah so I think I went to Grand Rapids it was like five or six hour bus ride got there at 2 a.m got into the Airbnb race was the next day it was like 29 degrees and pouring rain oh I know I, yeah this is like 2016 or 17 yep. or something yeah. i think it's a 17, 17 yeah. Yep. yeah you you didn't i only thought it could be that cold and still raining in vermont but i think it happens in michigan too <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah the race goes off it was like peanut butter mud the whole way um i ended up making the break with uh the guy who won uh what's his name what's his name what's his name Man, uh actually, he won he won dirty cans in one year Matt Stevens. Matt oh, Matt yeah, Stevens. Yeah. And then this other uh, Hank Happy dude, um, Mac Brennan. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, I'm, like, good at sprinting at a small group. This is going to be awesome. And I think it was, like, the highest output I've ever done for three hours, period, in any bike race ever <laughs> and crazy conditions. But 
long story short, Matt Stevens won the race and then I flew home that afternoon and it was just like a total wild Barrier Bay experience, but really cool <laughs> to see that many people out there and the brewery partnering with them. They definitely did it right. I don't know why they kind of like, do you feel like they've kind of fallen off the map in notoriety compared to like other events now popping up Unbound yes. and... It's a great question. It, it, um, it's still the big one here in Michigan. Like, uh, it, it would, it's always kind of the high point of everyone's season in the gravel scene here in Michigan. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I was at Mid South one year, and some guy was riding next to me. He's like, "Where are you from?" I said, "Michigan." And he was like, "Oh, I'm gonna be at Barry Bay in a couple months." Uh, so uh, it still has the nor, you know, it's still a big one, but. Because it's not 200 miles, it's kind of fallen off the right, map a little. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's a couple things that in the past have been tough for it. I think it's the same weekend as Sea Otter. So oh, right. you may not get some of the real like big-name pros out there. You get a lot of fast local guys, um, some pros, but like most of those big names would maybe be at Sea Otter. Or, or maybe a lot of the media attention goes to Sea Otter. Um but yeah, it seems like it, it it is a huge race, and then these other ones, the new the new guys in town, have kind of um, I don't know taken up the space of of the the attention of the media or, or whatever. Well, but I still think it's it, it's still maybe the largest at right. least. Yeah, it still it still has like four thousand riders. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it's just one of those things where the promoters are happy and they're like, we sell out. We have this many people. We right. don't feel like we need to like puff our chests and like reach out to all these publications and get our name out there because we are sustainable and we are successful. Maybe it's I, one of those I, things. I think. I think. Oh yeah, it, you're it, exactly it, it, right. It absolutely sells out, and now they have a hundred mile option. And the first year there was like three hundred people, and then the next year, uh, and it it took like a month or two to sell out. The second year that they did the hundred mile, it sold out the first day. Wow! Like, yeah, like, immediately. I, I I think it was within an hour. Like I remember sitting at work, staring at my phone, ready to, you know, register. And sure enough, as soon as uh as soon as I got my confirmation email, they were already closing up because they said it had sold out already. It's wild. So yeah, so Michigan, you know, you have um in terms of gravel, like the big race is is Barry, and then Iceman is such a huge staple in the in the right. cycling calendar um coast but to coast is getting up there i thought i saw something that you maybe put on instagram or something something about how you could put together a whole race schedule in vermont yeah in terms of uh um and and i think that's when i saw that i was like yeah that's that's oh exactly the same with with michigan hey you usually it's my dog you win you win another award usually it's my Banjo. dog that interrupts the podcast <laughs> You guys might have to edit this out. I bet there's... <laughs> Banjo! Stop! God damn. All right. Hold on one second. That's all right. I am sorry about that. Hey, no worries. UPS person. Four-year-old Border Collie. Very protective of the house. Is your dog's <laughs> name Banjo? Yep. That's amazing. He <laughs> He, his name is Banjo because when he was a puppy, you know how Border Collies have that like black-white pattern? Mm -hmm. The white part yeah. on his nose when his snout was still really short looked exactly like a banjo. And I also play the banjo, so it's like <laughs> banjo. That's that's great. Yeah. Um, 
No, I mean, so I was just, I was saying how in in Michigan, you could definitely put together, not definitely, like we do. I mean, it's it's well, you we even have to pick and choose just in our Michigan races because there's Michigan races that overlap, mm-hmm. right? And you could you can have a whole series and 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 maybe that is, I think maybe as you find more and more races popping up in different states, you will just have like the community within the state. You know, you'll always have an, an unbound or mid south or um, Vermont overland or what you know, like. But um, but I I feel like yeah, some of these smaller grassroots ones are oh they're so fun. Um, they're, they're the best. Yeah, agreed. And it's There's, like, you know, your buddy that you ride with every weekend, he's the guy that puts on this race, you know, and you just like, go and. Yeah, there's like yeah. 75 people there, 100 people there, and mm-hmm. it's it's a completely different vibe. I feel like in the future, people are going to pick, you know, maybe one, two, three big events to really test themselves at, maybe in a calendar year, but then just like f- fill it in with the grassroots stuff. Right. Um, and I think that's really important. Basically, in Vermont, there's you could consider three really big gravel events, Rasputitsa, Vermont Overland and Route of Vermont, Ted and Laura's new event. Um, Those three kind of get like a lot of the numbers, but then there's like, there's gotta be 20 other smaller ones that are from like 50 to 350 people. And you could literally do a whole entire season. Um, And they're all across the state and all the promoters know each other and they help each other out. Like we'll share equipment um, will help promote each other's registration days. And it's just cool to be in an industry that you're not like event promoters aren't at, they're helping each other out. They're not at each other's necks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like fierce competition. Um, I hate to, to get to like into a tangent already about, about all this, but um, you know, I don't know if you saw this in Vermont, but I think like a year ago, I was, it was, it was crazy how, um, swollen the gravel calendar had gotten. And, and I was really worried about, it's almost pushing away these grassroots and everything's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, uh, I don't want to just talk about COVID at all, but like COVID hits and it flipped everything around. And so all of a sudden these big things, these big races can't go on. These big events totally canceled. And the only ones that can happen are these smaller grassroots ones, less people. They're a little more flexible with their, um, with the way they, um, with the days and the way they ran things. And so all of a sudden what I was worried about, these grassroots ones dying, now it's like this resurgence of, no, maybe mm-hmm. – Maybe it, the grassroots is the way to um, to be racing, to be participating in events, and I'm just glad to see that um, none of these have really. I mean, I'm sure there were there were a lot of races that that hurt, and some of the smaller ones maybe are totally gone now. But uh, we saw some some pretty creative things happen in Michigan. Yeah, same here in Vermont. It almost kind of became like over the summer. Right now we're we're pretty locked down just because like recent spikes of the holidays and winter, everybody's inside. But over the summer, you'd see like a lot of group rides happening and there were no like real events where you'd like sign up. But like I hosted like a friend's invite, 30 person kind of Overland ride on the day that Vermont Overland would have happened. Um, Ian Boswell hosted a similar thing for his 
Fondo, Peach and Fall Fondo. And like we just found ourselves kind of hopping around from like friends' houses with like just a gr- good group of riders to do these awesome rides and hang out afterwards and just like have beers and turn on the barbecue. Um, and we were sitting around like, maybe this is what we do in 2021. Like screw big events. We'll just like yeah. <laughs> organize small group rides in like new locations that we haven't ridden in. Um, so that was really fun, but yeah, I'm conflicted because I love the big events. Um, we've been to most of them now, uh, just shooting like with our work for Vermont social and my past with racing. Um, it's a huge part of the cycling industry and like talk about cycling overall is doing well because of COVID, but talk about the event industry. Like I can't think of something that was hit harder. Um, just with everything being canceled. So I hope they're able to come back in some fashion um, in 2021. We'll see. I, d- I, I want to talk, a, I want to talk a little bit about your, not a little bit. I want to talk about your the Vermont social and all of that in, in a, in a little bit, but let where you mentioned overland and that's kind of the, your, your new thing right now, right? That you took over the Vermont overland, um, Tell us a little bit about what exactly it is. It's not just a single race, right? Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll try and give you the whole backstory. Um, I'm from Cape Cod. I went to school, like this athletic high school as a ski racer in Vermont called Kilton Mountain School. Um, and that's kind of where I first got exposed to, it was like a prep school kind of athletic skiing academy thing. I was like, gung-ho on being a skier um and that's where I got exposed to biking because we'd like bike in the spring for cross training and this guy Peter Vollers approached Killington Mountain School and said hey I want to start a junior cycling team so I signed up for it in the spring I think I won like the first three races that I entered and I was like whoa this is really fun I've never been this good at a sport because I sucked at downhill ski racing (laughs) um (laughs) And I got through that, and I also ended up getting kicked out of Killington Mountain School for being a shithead teenager. Um, <laughs> and this guy, Peter Vollers, found out that I got kicked out, and this was the year after I kind of like first joined the team, and he called me up like the day later. He was like, dude, I don't care that you got kicked out of school. I want you on the cycling team this spring. You're a good cyclist. You're better than this commit to like racing a season so that was that was the second kind of season I did maybe I was 16 or something and I did it I went full-on like trained all early spring um into the summer and just like went all into it ended up reapplying to school the same school they let me back in for I guess that'd be junior year and that's kind of how that they still have a cycle a junior cycling program to this day and that's how it uh, started more or less, but then I kept racing, kept racing. Peter was like my original coach, kind of also founder of Vermont Overland. Um, the original guy who got me into cycling. So then I went off and raced a bit, um, as a continental pro in America and in Europe and on the national team. And all the while Peter was back in Vermont he was a real estate lawyer by day, Vermont Overland kind of adventure promoter by night. And he started this thing called the Overland, which was 
we we would always kind of when we were training especially in the winter we'd stay off the pavement roads just because and we'd ride our we didn't have gravel bikes we just had cycle cross bikes um and we'd find we did these like epic training rides on these like beautiful farm roads in vermont and we're like i think peter realized like holy crap this is a really fun new form of riding riding why don't i create an event so i guess this would be we're in our ninth year of the event so nine years ago um okay so pretty early on in like any sort of gravel conversation yeah exactly so he first year he tried he promoted the event um it was called the vermont overland grand prix and he was also a little bit of a backstory on Peter. He was a pro growing up on the crit, like raced with IME, like against 7-Eleven, like very old school kind of American road race background. Okay. And so he had that like kind of like big banner type finish, downtown finish. He wanted to like bring crit racing and like merge it with gravel almost. Um so he did this thing. He offered prize money the first year, which was a great idea to get like some pros there in the very first year of a first event. I think it might have had 350 people. Um, hmm. And it was just like a sm- smashing home run success. Like people loved it. They'd never done a type of event like that. It was right before cycle cross season. So like people, it was a good almost like, because it was at the end of August, it was almost like a good transition from road racing to cycle cross for a lot of those people in New England. And then it just evolved from there, um, grew and grew and grew to now we have like 1500 riders, uh, still in central Vermont. But Peter recently had a change. His wife, Kim got her dream job out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She is the general manager at this place called the Los Bulbanos, which is just an amazing boutique kind of really high-end in with an organic farm attached so she was like i'm going you can come with me or not (laughs) so peter went and he uh was just going to do like and still is doing remote law work and i think what he went he thought he would be able to do the events remotely um and i think he quickly realized that he wasn't going to be able to do that plus just kind of like starting a new chapter of his life. I think he wanted like a clean bookending close to that. So he approached me and I, up until this point, I had with through Vermont Social, um, Vermont Overland was always a client and I had been handling the marketing for probably five years now, all of it. Um, So he, through our relationship and through me knowing the inside and out of the business, he was like, do you want to take this on? You can have it. Um, and we had to cancel our 2020 event and just deferred all the entries to 2021. So it was like kind of a good time for Peter to pull out almost. And he basically just gifted the business to me. And now that's that's kind of what I've been doing. And we opened registration day last uh, June, January 1st and sold out crazy fast again, which is just mind-blowing to see how, how badly people want these events to come back. How big of a field are you are you now having? You said you started with like 350. What are you at now? Uh, 1,500. And okay. we... I, I'm conflicted on size because I feel like there's a breaking point 
where it's like it gets too big and it kind of feels inauthentic. And if it's too small, there's not enough of a party. So um, 2021, that'll be our biggest event ever. Last year, we had about 1,200 people. Um, but, you know, we're going to give it a shot and see how it goes. Um, I always have an eye on sustainability, too. You can't get so big that the local communities start to like be like, whoa, this is a little too much for us. Um, but, yeah, that's the, that's the current size. That's a fantastic consideration that you're that you're factoring in the community itself and not just the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as a uh, someone who has done the former marketing for the for the race for the event, and then as if I understand correctly, as a former winner of the overall event, once that's my once. claim to claim to fame. Once, <laughs> so it sounds like a pretty good fit for you to then just come in and be the director of the entire, uh, the entire event. Um, is this something that, you know, back when, uh, his name is Peter, right? Yeah. Um, P- when Peter was kind of, um, uh, getting you into cycling and, um, into racing and all this, was this anything that you thought you wanted to do with your life or anything that you thought that no. would be as you're going to events and going to races that you thought, Hey, maybe, maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll run my own. No, I always like when I was still trying to climb the ladder of professional road cycling, I would see people start events or like start coaching and be like, oh man, I never want to do that because that means you never actually really made it as a pro. And then I went like a couple more years and very quickly realized that there's absolutely no way, unless you're like one of the best riders on the world tour, you're not making enough money to Mm -hmm. support yourself. Unfortunately, that's a sad truth within American pro cycling. Um, So, and then it kind of maybe evolved to like, man, I should really start thinking about how I can make money after or like during or during like on the side of racing or after racing. Um, and then I remember being like, maybe, maybe Peter would hire me to help with the marketing because his event and brand is really cool and successful, but he's not doing anything. And I was kind of had an eye for marketing. Um, and he ended up being my first client kind of I just started helping him with Instagram and Facebook and that's, and I was still racing at this point and that was kind of how Vermont social formed really, um, as a side project to just supplement my income while I was still racing and doing races like the tour of China and tour of Azerbaijan and these crazy things in Europe. Um, and I just remember thinking like, so no, I never thought that I would be in charge of the whole thing, but I remember thinking like, oh, it'd be so cool if one day I could just like, Peter could pay me a livable wage to help him with the marketing. Um, so yeah, sitting here today, super, super, super grateful for all that he's done for me and also taught me over the years just within business and life skills. I think it's it's very important to have a mentor like that because looking back on like that start, if he, if he didn't call me that next day after I got kicked out of school, I, had, I have no idea where I'd be right now. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, I want to talk about Vermont Social, but before we get there, um, just tell us a little bit about the course of the Overland and Absolutely. what people 
are, are riding or can expect um, if they if they are uh, going to be a part of the event. Totally. So it's on the shorter side, but don't let that fool you because it's crazy hard. So it's about 50 miles with 6,500 feet of climbing, wow. 95% gravel and or class four unmaintained roads. The really cool thing about Vermont is that there's this network of ancient town highways, which people used back in the 1800s. Um, and they're still legal throughways today, but they'll be unmaintained. So like, and there's this classification system for surface types. So like a class two highway is like your normal paved road. Class three highway in Vermont is your normal kind of graded gravel road that's maintained by the towns. And then you have class four roads, which are legal town highways. Anybody can traverse them, but they're completely unmaintained. So think of your like double track Jeep trail type thing. Oh, we know what you're talking about. We have, we have some yeah. of those in, in yeah. Michigan. <laughs> the the for, forest roads. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and Vermont is super hilly and cavernous and it's got a lot of rock it's like a lot of different stuff going on with the topography so these class four roads are just wild um so on the course it's about 50 miles 6,500 feet of climbing you'll have anywhere from between five and six we call them pave sectors which are just really the class four unmaintained roads and those will vary in length but maybe all said and done you're riding like six or seven miles of class four over the 50 miles. Um, and the hills here are just crazy, crazy steep and sinuous. So we recommend that people ride like a gear ratio of one to one, if not way more, or else you're going to be hurting unless you're just like a superhero climber. <laughs> um, but the climbs aren't really long. They're just super punchy and super steep, kind of like five to 10 minute long climbs. And you go through a couple of different villages and it's just one of those races that's so intense and so short for like the, the I'm talking, I'm speaking through the lens of a person who would be at the front of these races for the general public. It's a really hard, long four or five hour event. Um, but Brendan Rim won the event in 2019. He races for Hincapie. Um, and he won in two hours and like 25 minutes or something. So it's just like a crazy, crazy fast, um, super technical, super tactical race when you compare it to stuff like Unbound, which is 200 miles and flat, mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. So, well, that's uh, the, the beauty of gravel, right? Like same, you know, categorized under the same type of race, gravel. But yeah. they can be like some could be a basically a mountain bike race, and others could be a um, a road race on gravel roads. Totally. So every year, do you have it on the same course, or is it a varying um, course? We've changed venues a couple times. So the first ever year when it was called the Vermont Overland Grand Prix, it started out of Woodstock, Vermont, um, and the the town actually did not really like the event there um because some of the local shops were angry and it was just like the first time it was there i think it takes with any event in any like downtown area i feel and 
I'd be interested in your perspective on this too, is like, I feel like there's an equilibrium point where there's like friction for the first couple of years until the town really adopts it once they see that economic impact. So we have other, you see big running events in Woodstock and the whole town comes out to watch and they love it and happens every single year, but it takes a while to get to that point. So we didn't get to that point in Woodstock and then it moved to Pomfret, which is literally just like two miles north of Woodstock, tiny little town that it was there for about three years. And then Peter bought a house in Reading, which is about 10 miles south of Woodstock, um, Reading, West Windsor area, which is where actually my partner and I live. And then he just said, screw it. I'm going to have the the race at my house because he he had like 45 acres or something and enough space to make it happen. And that was honestly probably the best venue to date because it just felt like a house party. And it felt like, like, how is this possible? Um, And it was... It was just really, really, really fun. And then we had, we've had like, we do other smaller rides throughout the year. And this thing called Vomar, the Vermont Overland Maple Adventure Ride, was always out of a Scutney Outdoors, which is uh, like an ancient kind of ski mountain right down the road from Peter's house. And that's where the new venue for Vermont Overland will be uh, in 2021. And they can accommodate upwards of, you know, 2,000 people. So, and camping and the whole thing, which we're grateful about that. But yeah, we've moved around a couple a couple times. So there's going to be on-site camping. Yeah, totally. And oh, that's we awesome. include that in the entry fee and encourage people to camp. Uh, we just ask them that they pack up on. A lot of people drive up Sunday morning for the race. So Sunday morning before the big parking rush hits, we ask people that they pack up their camp setup. But you know, you can come Friday night camp all weekend live music food the whole thing so and what time of year is it uh late august august 29th is the official date um hopefully that is late enough in the year to see a decrease in covid cases absolutely yeah (laughs) i was just gonna say live music a little nervous about that yeah (laughs) so all of this kind of came out of your work with um, them through the marketing and then you start Vermont Social. Let's talk about Vermont Social. I think that that is probably where I first heard your name and saw your work and then kind of got into you as more of like a like your, your cycling and, and, and all of the other stuff. And then I saw, of course, that you're taking over Vermont Overland. But um, yeah, Vermont Social, man. I mean, the the stuff that you guys are putting out and the videos are so fantastic. Um, just let's talk a little bit about how you went from, um, just running the social media for Vermont Overland to, um, producing these, uh, Wahoo Frontiers videos and, and all of these other great, great films. Yeah, absolutely. So while I was still racing, probably back in 2000, 16 2017 was right around the time that I kind of started handling the marketing for Peter and Vermont Overland and I was still racing I was like wow this is a really cool way and seems like a much needed service for a lot of local businesses in Vermont so the client list kind of grew from there and at first it was just full-on kind of handling people's social media accounts Mm -hmm. um 
and trying to drive business for them through those venues. And this was right about the, around the time as I was starting to get into photography, I had a teammate, a shout out to Sam Rosenholtz on one of the, the last team road teams I was on who kind of got me into photography. And I just fell in love with it because we were traveling to all these really cool places and it was just something that, yeah, I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just totally fell in love with it. Um, so I was bringing the camera everywhere and I was starting to do that more for the client list on the social side. And then slowly my name and photography kind of slowly got, got out there and any business that I would get, I would run it through Vermont Social. And so at first on the social media side, the client list grew considerably for a while. And then we started seeing the need. I started toying around with video for Vermont Overland and like the YouTube channel. You can go back there and watch those God awful first couple of videos we made. <laughs> uh, you want to see something bad. And um, I kind of just like, it was just a really fun couple of years of learning, you know, learning photography, getting better at marketing, learning how to edit video, learning how to shoot video, upgrading the gear. I just like kept reinvesting all the money I made into like the gear and acquiring kind of the next gig. And it was just like this evolution process. And then kind of like the, probably the big break where my name, Vermont Social's name started to get out there was when Ted King hired me to do his Road to Kansas series. Mm -hmm. um, and that was also just incredibly fun year where it was just him and I going to like land run, going to Iceland, going to Kansas, just absolutely goofing off and just filming everything and having fun. We weren't structuring these videos. We were just like, let's film whatever we want to film and just like see what happens and make a cool video. And I think people loved seeing that and seeing kind of an athlete of his stature in that kind of unpolished way. So that helped the name get out there a little bit more. And then the following year, Wahoo reached out to us, um, seeing our name through probably that series and some other ads we had done for clients being like, Hey, I want to do this other series called Wahoo Frontiers. And that's kind of Matt Porter's brainchild. He's the head of content over at Wahoo Fitness. And that's just another example of like a, a year later, a little over a year later, um, probably five episodes now, just like crazy, crazy growth and like new gear and new ways of shooting and new ways of editing and just like trying to make every video, every next video better than the one before. Um, and yeah, it's just one of those weird things that like you keep putting good work out into the world and your name will get around. And we never, at least it's kind of ironic, like Vermont Social is a marketing company, but we don't really market ourselves that much other than like me posting about it, <laughs> maybe on my personal channels. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the evolution. Um, and now we're talking with Wahoo and a bunch of other clients about 2021 projects and going to kind of see see where that ends up. Now, did you have any formal training or have you just kind of, as this has gone along, just kind of let it snowball? And uh, Kind of the latter. I decided not to go to college 
um, right out of high school because I was racing. And that was like my excuse looking back. I'm like, man, I really wish I went to college just to be able to like check that box. And then on the other side, I have a lot of friends who are like, dude, you didn't miss anything. Like <laughs> you got a head, you got a head start on all of us. <laughs> um, so no, no formal trainer training other than like a few really, really good mentors along the way who taught me the ins and outs of photography, who taught me stuff about video. And then I'm, I'm adamant that if you're passionate about learning something and you're pas- and you're willing to like take the extra step to just like seek out that information, you will find that information so easily. You can teach yourself anything in this digital world. It's mind blowing. So if you're just willing to Google something, you're willing to watch a couple of videos on YouTube, it is crazy how much you can learn. So yeah, hundred percent self-taught, never went to film school, did not go to college probably won't at this point (laughs) (laughs) so have you found the um the transition from cyclist and then marketing and you see these transitions a lot like maybe an event promoter like you're like you were saying and now that's Mm -hmm. what you're doing um or um i mean now the big thing is like you're a privateer you know you're trying to get your own um sponsors or or whatever Mm -hmm. and you kind of went down a creative road and Mm -hmm. Um, I guess cycling is not a really creative sport. I mean, it kind of, but like you're now a a creative, I guess you, um, and totally. And did you find yourself now in that, like you're still servicing cyclists and that community, but on, on the creative side, talk to us a little bit of how you, how that, how that works or how, how you are, um, responding to being a creative. Yeah, absolutely. probably have a couple things there first the the trend the transition from being or calling yourself a pro athlete to for lack of a better term entering like a nine to five thing although this is not nine to five thing Mm -hmm. but like going from pro athlete to not pro athlete I can't that it can't be overstated enough how hard of a transition that is and I've seen a lot of friends do it and me going through it myself, it's like your identity is being a pro athlete. You are this, you live this, everybody knows. And I think it actually traps a lot of people within the sport. Like the the last maybe two years I was racing, I was like toying with the idea. I was like, I don't really see a future in this. I feel like I've trained as hard as I possibly can and my numbers are plateauing. I'm not getting better results. I'm still young, but like, am I just gonna be doing this for however much longer or do I say or or do I stop now and do something else and I remember feeling trapped like all my peers were gonna be like oh man you're a quitter you're a quitter so I think it's like a really really hard transition and I was lucky in the fact that I was able to kind of start Vermont Social alongside as I was still racing to then wait to really make that jump once Vermont Social was big enough to like make it worth it Um, and I remember like probably a year later, it was like, it was tough being like, oh, feeling like I needed to go train when I really didn't. And I wasn't training for anything or like having this like anxious need to like exercise. And I think exercise is important, but not to the level of like what I was doing it or the amount that I was doing it. Um, so that transition was tough. And then 
kind of becoming a creative, I think that transition and then like my experience in the past with cycling has been a great tool with what we're doing now with Vermont Social and working with a lot of athletes. Um, it helps it helps us as creatives get the best out of the athlete and know what they're going through, knowing the right kind of questions to ask. Also being an athlete and being kind of in front of the camera too, like you know what is uncomfortable and you know what's annoying when like a creative asks you to do something. So we have, I at least feel like we have a really good working relationships with the athletes we work with. And I feel like that's an advantage because we are athletes or have been athletes ourselves. Um, and I feel like we can get more authentic responses and shots and stuff from these athletes because we have been in their shoes before and we're not, we're not asking them to do something that's going to feel fake or we're not some big enormous production company coming in and asking them to do a million takes of like, Oh, we need you to walk from your bedroom to the kitchen and do this. Oh, we didn't get that. No, do it again. We're, we're trying to like embed ourselves within these athletes lives and like bring the best out of them. Um, I don't know if that answers your creative question. Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, I think creativity, it's, it's, you can learn, you, you can learn some creativity, but a lot of it is just natural, right? And I think that's one thing that you see in people's work that, um, oh, they naturally have a creative gift and, and whether or not their, their gear or their, um, what they have is the best or they're shooting on an iPhone, mm-hmm. you could, like that creativity comes through no matter what. You, you mentioned authenticity, and, and I think that's such mm-hmm. a, a key thing too. And with creativity and authenticity, I think one thing that your videos are, are, um, are doing is, is like really telling the story of not only the athlete, but also the event or the organization that they're taking part in. Um, and, uh, do you, do you feel like you are like storytelling is an important aspect or piece to now what you do for, for a living? Like, yeah, you can say you're a, a, a marketer or a, or a this or a that, but do you ever think of yourself as I'm a storyteller and that's, that's my job? Um, I, I feel like I don't give myself that title, but I know in the back of my mind that it's really important. Um, because at the end of the day, like if you have a really good story, all of your shots can totally suck and you'll still captivate people. So story is by far the number one most important thing. Um, and it's just human nature. If you like start hearing a good story, you can't help but pay, pay attention. Um, and it's definitely a skill. Uh, it's, I think the harder part of it is working with athletes and getting them to feel comfortable with enough with you to actually tell their real story. Mm-hmm. Um, because the higher up you go, like they're media trained, they know what to say, they know how to plug, plug their sponsors, they know how to do these things. But it's like the next level when you can try and get them to kind of like uh, really level with you and tell you how they're feeling, tell you what they're upset about, tell you what struggles they've been through and how they kind of overcame them. Mm -hmm. Um, We saw 
uh, we just released our latest video with Colin Strickland and he had talked about his decision to not go to the world tour, which is like mind blowing for me because that was my dream as a junior cyclist and a U23 cyclist and a low level pro cyclist. Um, that's everybody's dream. Like you just want to go to the world tour, but like hearing him kind of talk about that really frankly and being like, no, I didn't want to was mind blowing to me. And it was also cool because I felt like we were really connecting. Cause like we had both kind of, I was running the interview. We'd both had that experience and we were just talking about it like person to person. And, but like, you know, with the cameras, with the lights and we got into that conversation and it just felt really natural. Um, and it was cool because it, he had talked about it before, but not in video form. Um, there had been a couple cycling, like Velo News articles or something about it, but that was really the first time it had been recorded on film with kind of him investing that much of himself into that story. It was really, really cool. So yeah, and at the end of the road, story wins every time <laughs> yeah i think i think that's a, a beauty of a podcast especially a long-form podcast where you can just have a conversation and it may not be um as a if you have to be a consumer that enjoys listening to that i mean the great mm -hmm. thing it's not as tight or or pretty or shiny as like a, a well-edited video but totally the truth and the authenticity authenticity that you can get in a in a long form conversation, I think is, is some of the best that you can. Yeah, um, I agree. So like, for instance, the moment that you're, you're having a, a great conversation with Colin and, and like capturing a moment that maybe would never be cap or hasn't been captured yet, or just these opportunities that you're getting with Wahoo. Are you, are you feeling now that you, you were talking about your dream of being a pro cyclist or going, joining the world tour, but do you think that now with the opportunities that you made for yourself, that you are actually beyond what you could have done in a world tour, um, it, the work that you're putting in now is giving you more opportunity than if you were on the world tour for one or two seasons? Yes, that's, you put that pretty well. Um, I feel I probably don't, I have so much fun on a day-to-day -day basis with what we're doing. Like uh, my girlfriend, Gertrude Sawako, she works at a nursing school and then babysits in her off time and she's like nine to five. Weekends are weekends. I am like working all the time on the weekends, but I don't consider it work because it's fun. Um, and there's a lot more ladder to climb from here. And I think once you reach the world tour, you know, how long can you do that for? Um, how much money can you actually make? Uh, what are you going to do afterwards? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the pinnacle, um, at least within the sport of cycling. So I just, I like to think that there's a lot more to learn and a lot more to achieve with what I'm doing for, you know, until I'm like 50, 60, 70 years old, which is pretty cool to think about. Um, another note on kind of like the opportunities that Wahoo has given us and kind of like just where content and marketing in general is going is like what I think is so cool about the Wahoo Frontier series is like 
at the end of the day, it's advertising. It is commercial. It is paid for by Wahoo. It is technically a long form ad for Wahoo, but we don't really plug the product. Like you might see a shot of the trainer. You might see a shot of the Rome, but that's, you know, like maybe five, 10 seconds out of a 20 minute video. Um, and you can look towards the Yeti Presents series or like the gold standard is Patagonia, where these brands are just going out of their way to pay for and fund and tell a really cool or really important story about social change or something that's really important. And they're not pushing their product whatsoever. They're spending thousands and thousands of dollars on this, but they're not like buy this this is what the product does. This is what it enables you to do. Um, it's about something bigger. And I think consumers now are really smart. Like they don't want to be told what to buy. They want to hear a story and about something important or about an important person. And when they see a brand that goes out of their way to kind of tell that, they know it's from that brand and they just end up being more stoked on that brand anyway. So... Um, some goals for us in Vermont social down the road, like I look at the documentaries that Patagonia puts out and I'm just like, or North face or something. And I'm like, that's so cool. Um, just because they're telling a story about a really important issue and they're not showing their product whatsoever, but it's like, you know, it's from Patagonia and you're just like, wow, that's cool that they went and spent the money to do that. Right. Well, I, I wanted to go back a little bit. I, I, I kind of had a question on my mind, and we, we've kind of, you know, eclipsed past it. But did you have, I, I just know from my own personal experience, sitting out of a race to do something behind mm -hmm. the scenes, have you had, it? was it emotionally difficult for you to go from being on the start line to being behind the lens? Uh, Yeah, probably the first couple times um let me try to think of maybe yeah maybe the first time ted and i shot land run now mid-south uh mm -hmm. i was like oh man like i'm photographing or filming the race from the lead vehicle or a vehicle and i'm like i'm seeing kind of like the tactics go down i'm like and i know in the back of my head like and I'm, I see, I know the people in the breakaway or whatever, and I've, I've raced against them before. And I know that I could probably be there if I wanted to, but so those thoughts have pro kind of like gone through my head, but mm -hmm. I'm having so much fun photographing that, <laughs> <laughs> that I, that it doesn't really bother me that much. You're like, I don't have to clean a bike after this. This is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> a good example would be Iceland when we went to the rift. And mm -hmm. part of the joy of photography and like filmmaking for me is like seeing new places and just like filming stuff that I haven't seen before. And the landscapes in Iceland were just absolutely mind blowing. So yeah, it was a really cool race, but then I'm like in the back of this car going up a volcano, like <laughs> photographing the race. And I, I just remember being like, this is the coolest thing ever, way cooler than I would ever want to do this race. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I'm definitely fortunate that I found something that I enjoy more. 
like I'll still ride my bike for fun for fitness. I actually run a lot now just cause it's a little more time efficient, um, to get a good workout in. Um, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I know you guys will. We'll we'll definitely edit that part. (laughs) Oh come on! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Big mountain biker, my border collie. uh, He he loves mountain biking, and then obviously in Vermont skiing too. Like the whole backcountry scene is kind of exploding here, if there's enough snow. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I like to keep it balanced and stuff like that. But no, long story short, I'm definitely lucky that I found what I'm doing now because I I have no regrets and I'm not constantly thinking about the past like oh man what if what if what if can we talk a little bit we we started off talking a little bit about gravel and gravel racing and all and all of this but I kind of want to circle back because most most of the um events we are talking about right now are gravel races and yep. a lot of the a lot of the things, a lot of the uh, events that you film or shoot are gravel races, um, and like the whole Wahoo series is a bunch of gravel riders, um, totally. gra- gravel athletes. How much do you attribute the whole boom of gravel to helping you kind of get Vermont social and your whole career off the off the ground? A lot, um, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of talented people within our industry out there they're just not known yet and it only takes a couple successful videos or filming something of importance once or twice to get your name out there and like looking back to kind of ted's video series um like that was the first time that race in iceland had ever happened but it was like a huge gravel race and like ted went colin went colin won um and just having the opportunity to document that one in iceland incredible location two first time race ever three kind of like famous in their own right athletes participating in it that's kind of like a pretty good recipe for success and getting your name out there so i was i think absolutely like right time right place um I was lucky enough to just have had that experience as a cyclist getting into it a little bit. And then as I was transitioning to this industry, um, being able to shoot kind of easily shoot that and like shoot the mid South and like have relationships with the promoters and be able to get into the lead car to actually capture the content. Um, whereas now we've shot so much gravel and so much cycling that we're like kind of excited to take on other projects I'm that sure. are not <laughs> within the sport industry, which are, are like, I'm sure somebody who works in like food or something else, some other industry would be terrified of like doing sports photography or making a video about an event. But that's kind of like the opposite for us where we're like, oh man, we kind of want to challenge ourselves in other ways too. So yeah, very cool. I think it, it's great to see. They're the obvious, obvious. Um, you know, the gravel, like the the brands, the the bikes, the types of bikes, the uh, the models or whatever. Then some of the events. I mean, you see that boom, mm-hmm. but then to see these niches also um, profit from. No, profit's probably a bad word, but um, 
But like niches like like a, a media company or a marketing company or even like, um, you know, brands that like make frame bags, you know, totally. explode and all of a sudden. And um, it's like this whole well, you, you were talking about communities and how there is a balance, but how a community on a, on a given weekend can see a huge, I mean, Barry Roubaix, for instance, it's in Hastings, Michigan, small place, mm-hmm. but that whole, it's, it's a huge boom to their economy on that weekend. Right. And this was a huge thing this last year when there was no race. So that like what happens to all the restaurants and all the, all the stores that don't get that um, economic boom. But I was just thinking about the whole, it's like a whole gravel economy that's working together 100%. now. Um on all different aspects, not just cycling, but from from all over the place. Well, gravel cycling has to support the beer sales. Yeah, dude, beers. totally. <laughs> well, that, I mean, listen, I mean, founders and bells, I mean, they're not dumb. They're putting themselves, they're attaching themselves to these cycling races. And I'm sure it's no different um, in Vermont. They're mm-hmm. probably uh, local breweries and bigger breweries that, that want to be a part of it. Um, yeah, 100%. Uh, the Vermont beer scene... I'm sure just like Michigan is off the wall. Okay. There are so I many- wasn't I wasn't joking. I want to do a little <laughs> Michigan versus Vermont here. I've tried you're our third guest that's from Vermont and so we we talked to Ted, we talked to Ian and yep. I kind of danced around this, but they weren't they didn't really uh they didn't. Re- they weren't into it, but I. Well, they they're, 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 they're still athletes. They can't drink as much as I can. Well, well, just not, just not the beer, just not the beer. But the, yeah, that is a good point. But I feel like Vermont and Michigan, they're they're so similar. But I mean, there there's big differences. But uh, I, I think one, we're both basically Canada, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's essentially Canada. Um, most of our roads, I. I don't mean to speak for Vermont, but I, I'm pretty sure most of your roads are gravel roads, correct? Yeah, like I would want I want to say over eighty percent. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, but I mean, ton. and I think that's pretty similar yeah. to to Michigan, isn't that right, Sheldon? Like, w- w- yeah, we've got eighty-seven thousand miles of gravel roads here in Michigan. That's wild. I mean, and yeah, and yeah, your class four road would be like a forest road here probably way sandier here than it is in vermont you got some mm-hmm. some some uh rocks and things but but what made me really think about it though is when you when you put that i don't know what it was but that thing about you can have a whole gravel race um calendar in vermont and i was like yeah that's michigan for you like you, you yeah. could not leave yeah. michigan we, we've got the, we've got the gravel race series and you look at the series and it it's what probably 14 races mm-hmm. now holy cow and that's and that's not even including, what, another 10 that aren't on yeah. the series yeah. that, that you have to pick and choose on your weekends. I mean, and then you look at our crit series now, and there's like four races the entire season in, in crits here in Michigan. Yeah, that's, yeah, there's not. <laughs> that's um, wild. There's nothing. But then, but then again, too, like the beer scene in Vermont is great. Michigan, it's a little better than Vermont, I'm sure, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> What what's like what's Michigan's uh, staple kind of brew? Do you guys do the New England? Because I feel like I have the a, New England. I have like a lot. The super I have a, hazy. I have a lot to say about this. Um, I don't. Let's get, I'd say the I'd say the the hazy IPAs are kind of the Michigan. No way, they, no know, way, Sheldon. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, we've talked about this. I'm pretty sure. But what, what is so, it? So so the two. Uh, yeah, have you had two hearted, uh, Ansel? I haven't. But hold uh, on one sec. 
I sure hope he's getting something beer-related. I'm gonna feel really ashamed because I have no beer. I'm sorry, guys. I had to do this to you. Uh, oh. That is... Hill Farmstead voted best beer in the world, what, seven years in a row? <laughs> they happen to be located in Greensboro, Vermont. <laughs> I saw. Oh. As I'm sitting here with my coffee, now I'm now I'm really ashamed. We have really let down Man, our Man, so many things. You brought up Barry before we did. Uh, your dog barked <laughs> before my dog, which never happens. And and you cracked a beer before either Sheldon and I cracked a beer. You are... <laughs> There's a time difference, isn't there? Three for three. No, it's two o'clock in Vermont, right? No. Oh, yeah, I guess it's two o'clock here, too. <laughs> three for three, the perfect guest. Way to go, man. Um, no, so I think Michigan, I, I, I could go on a whole tangent about this. So Two Hearted is is like the flagship beer for well one might say for Bells Bells um out of um out of Kalamazoo Kalamazoo and it is a a maltier IPA pretty basic IPA but it's not like a West Coast IPA where it's pretty just like real hop forward and doesn't have a lot of backbone um, mm-hmm. it has a little bit more malt to it but it's pretty hoppy and a mm-hmm. lot of breweries in Michigan this is all my own. So people can probably, they'll probably disagree. Um, But I feel like a lot of breweries in Michigan have their own version of this, a little bit more maltier, a little bit more backbone, but pretty hop heavy. And I Mm. don't know why there's a West Coast IPA. They talk about West Coast IPA. They talk about New England IPA. I don't know why Michigan as a whole doesn't just brand it Michigan IPA and just call it Michigan IPA. And then everyone... Every brewery in Michigan, that's like you—you you have that Michigan IPA. They can vary styles, but um, but basically just a little, a little more backbone, but pretty hoppy. I think that's Michigan's thing. That's yeah, cool. like a Mich- a Michigan IPA. You pour it in a glass, and it almost looks like a red lager because it yeah. has that. Like what Trevor was saying, it has that extra malt to it. And yeah, I mean M forty three black. Uh, Black Rocks has their own. Everybody's got this this darker, mm-hmm. you know, red IPA. Yeah, Centennial Founders. Centennial is kind of the yep. same thing. So, anyways, yeah, long. What's the, uh, what's the like micro? I guess is it nano or micro of a certain size brewery? What's the like super small brewery scene like, and how do they, how do they do it with so many big breweries? I know a couple here in Vermont. There's these guys called Upper Pass, which they're great dudes. And they have this tiny little like micro brew setup where they'll do like small batch kind of like rotating series of stuff. But then they have their like staple three beers mm-hmm. or something that's a contract brewed out to like a really big brewery. Huh. And then it's canned there and it's branded. Um, what's the... I, I don't know. I guess what's the size difference, and like, can you can, can you, you go to like these micro brews and like get a beer? Well, can you can you make it as a as a small brewer? I mean, well, yeah. a, a big thing right now is, I mean, a lot we we're seeing a lot of them just like close due to COVID precautions, yeah. and a lot of have like um if you're if you're not making enough beer to be. Well, I mean, we have no restaurants either, but <laughs> if you're not canning beer and taking it to stores or bottling beer and taking it to stores, your your production, I'm sure, is hurting a ton. There's a lot of these places are doing to-go, so you can get a growler mm-hmm. fill or um, like the big crowler cans or whatever. But we do have a few... Michigan's pretty good about having 
their smaller local um, brewery, but also we have a couple of just enormous breweries that you know yeah. that are all over the country. Um, but you you do find I I think that you find that both of these are kind of working side by side, and yeah. um, and, and and you have a big following for some of the. You know, you go in; it's about the size of a bedroom, and mm-hmm. and they're pouring beers. Um, yeah. Well, outside of COVID years, we have a Monday night ride that is uh, uh, hosted by the bike shop that I work at. But down the street, there's uh, a brewery that uh, one of the the owners is. He always rides with us, and it's like the Monday tradition is stop at Ozone. It's it's a small brewery. You know, if you want to buy their products, you have to buy it there at at the brewery. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's yeah, it, it's part of the ride. The ride wouldn't be complete without going to yeah. Ozone at the end and ha- and having this. And it, like you described it, it's a microbrewery. It's it, you know, if you want to buy the beer, you have to go to the brewery That's to buy cool. the beer. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of them in Vermont, just kind of speckled off in the middle of nowhere, off a dirt road. Um, and I cannot wait until it's easy to just go for a ride and stop at one without um, them either being closed or just curbside pickup or something. Right. Really excited for that. Yeah, that really takes It takes away, away the whole experience of, you know, of just, like, mm-hmm. going in there, yeah. talking to the tender, like, everything. So, and, and being adventurous with ordering a beer that you know that you can't get elsewhere mm-hmm. and you can try out these different funky ipas or these different ales that they that these microbreweries can take that chance to say hey we're gonna do a keg or two of this and you know if it doesn't take off then whatever we didn't lose too much but for us as a consumer it's awesome you get to go in and be like oh yeah of course i'll try out this you know whatever hopped i you know triple hopped ipa or whatever they're serving yeah agreed that's man (laughs) i mean Listen, it's January, and I've kind of like sworn off. I, I think I gave myself one beer a day, and now you're drinking a beer, and I'm like, oh, should I have that one beer right now? <laughs> well, now I have to run over to On the Rocks and go buy some, I don't know, Two Hearted yeah. or something. Now I'm craving something. <laughs> I thought I'd sec- celebrate my second podcast ever. Yeah, fantastic. A 2 p.m. Hill Farmstead Society in Solitude. 2 p.m. on a Monday, man. <laughs> Quite good. It's great. Well, this is fantastic. I mean, you're, uh, I was telling Sheldon this. It's like, I, I, when, I think I started watching the, uh, grow to Kansas videos and, and then there were all these projects and that I saw Vermont social. And then I kind of, your name was always kind of floating around, kind of connected mm-hmm. to them. And I was like, who the heck is this Ansel Dickey guy? Like yeah. I got a, I gotta, I gotta check him out, and uh, and then I knew that you had something to do with all the Wahoo Frontiers thing. I, I listened to your your episode um, on Ian's podcast, mm-hmm. very cool. And then um, the second I saw that you're taking over Vermont Overland, I was like, I gotta talk to this guy, man. This <laughs> there's too much cool stuff that you're doing in this whole gravel scene, this whole cyclist thing. That uh, um, I I think it's cool to see, like. Sheldon and I's big thing. I mean, we like to talk to people from all over, but we love Michigan and we love to mm-hmm. like celebrate Michigan and what Michigan has to offer. And I feel like you're doing exactly that for Vermont. You're getting totally. out 
you're doing a lot of stuff outside of Vermont, but also, there's my dog, also you are um, celebrating Vermont for what Vermont has to offer. Totally. And I just, I, I love to hear those stories and, and, and see people just really killing it in those, in those different places. So I appreciate this, man. This was, this was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys. Um, I think it's really awesome that there is audio content like this, you know, available to people within this niche. And it's just cool to see. And I'm honored that you guys wanted to talk to me, but also be, you know, on the show with like Ted and Ian and um, Amity and a lot of other people. So hopefully one day, Maybe next year, or this year, I guess, now that it is 2021. Uh-huh. I'll see you guys at Barry Bay. Yeah. That would be fun. That, w- that would be amazing. We can have some good Michigan yeah. beers. And, uh, no, and, you know, the more we've talked to people from Vermont, it's like, it makes us wonder, like, what are we missing? Do we need to do, yeah. a, do a road trip? Yeah, if you guys want to come out to Overland 2021, be my guest. I would be happy to support the podcast and have you guys come out yeah that'd be that would that would be absolutely yeah, that'd amazing be great for sure anything else damn it now now i have to hop on the trainer and actually so so i don't die or just get a really good climbing gear <laughs> just grinding yeah, gear the just, hell ri- out of it. just ride a, mount- a downhill mountain bike with like the best climbing gear. so you're telling me not to bring my single speed yes yeah, we're pretty good we're pretty Do good about pride p- picking the wrong gear speed. with it Picking the wrong single speed gear. Yeah, we've gotten into that trouble before. Um, you know, anything else you want to like promote or or um, tease or anything else coming coming down the, um, the pike? That I don't know. Uh, maybe I'd just like to say that I I still have a lot more goals to accomplish, but I feel like I'm finally getting to the point where I don't feel like I'm fighting for my life every like moment you know, coming from being like, I need to get this gig. Otherwise, like I won't make it. Um, I feel like I'm finally comfortable and I've achieved enough success that, um, I'm doing stuff like this and I can give back and people want to know my opinion. And I'm just super grateful for everybody who enabled me to get here. Like Peter, Sam, who taught me photography, and Ted, who gave me the opportunity to shoot that series, Matt Porter at Wahoo, who trusted us with this series, you know, like, it, you're never, there's, behind anybody, there's always, like, a big team of people who enabled someone to get to wherever they are and are going, so, you know, super grateful for all those people, and then, I guess, just hoping for a good 2021, and that we start to see good news around covid coming out pretty soon (laughs) definitely perfect man well thank you so much sweet guys awesome meeting you yeah you guys uh, too hopefully hopefully the world returns to some form of normalcy and we can make our way out east yeah absolutely agreed definitely thanks guys the dirty chain podcast is a michigan mid-pack media production in partnership with kom cycling the source for your bike accessories and necessities Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Dirty Chain Podcast or email dirtychainpodcast at gmail.com. Call our hotline 616 522 2641. 
If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. Audio editing and original music by Trevor Gibney. Sheldon Little handles the social media, graphic design, and of course, bad decisions. And a big thank you to Ansel Dickey for taking the time to be on our podcast. And as always, keep your chain clean, but get your chain dirty. We will see you in the mid-pack.